Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Once when I was little, I think I saw a ghost. The house my family and I lived in until I was a junior in high school was built before World War II, and it was tiny. It had two bedrooms, one bathroom, a small kitchen and dining area, and a living room. It had been the house my great-grandmother and great-grandfather had lived in when my dad was a boy. My dad and his sisters have all kinds of stories of Mama and Papa Little. Papa Little was a tiny man and by most accounts a very stubborn man. He got all of his grandchildren either boy or girl, never their name, unless you were my Aunt Debbie, who was his favorite. He would sit out in the sun shirtless in the summertime and tell my mamma that he was baking when she'd ask for a hand around the house. My mamma Little was a big woman. She was taller than her husband, and where he was stubborn, she was the opposite. My dad said that she was always warm. Her hugs were warm, and even her smile was warm. He vividly remembers the biscuits she would bake, and from all that I've heard, he seems to have been her pig. When my dad was small, Mamma Little was diagnosed with cancer. By the time they found out she had cancer, and because of the limited medical advances at the time, it was too late. Mamma Little died in her bedroom, which later became my room. One night when I was 10, I was up late, well past midnight, watching TV on the floor of the living room because I didn't have cable in my bedroom. I saw something out of the corner of my eye, and when I turned, a woman walked out of my bedroom. She stopped, turned and looked at me, then smiled and waved, and turned toward the kitchen. I recall that she was wearing an apron and had her hair in a bun. It didn't scare me then, despite my young age, and I went right back to watching TV when the ghost disappeared. The next morning, I told my dad what happened, and when I described the woman I saw, he told me it was Mamma Little. He showed me her picture, and I was sure that the person I had seen in her house was her. Years later, when Anthony and I got married, I was gifted my Mamma Little's apron. When I held the thinning blue material in my hands, I knew that was the apron I had seen all those years ago. Not all encounters with ghosts are good ones. If you're a Patreon member, you have heard some of the scary stories others have shared on that platform. Stories of ghosts throwing things and yelling. If you've been listening for a while, then you'll remember the Humpty Doo Poltergeist, which was a spirit that made gravel rain from the ceiling. Much to your surprise, we aren't going to be talking about ghosts and ghouls that haunt homes or hospitals. Instead, today, we're talking about a phantom that snatched little girls from the streets as they walked home. He's a phantom because, much like the definition says, he was elusive. He killed six young girls and with each kill got more violent and more brave. With the evidence found at each crime scene, one would think we know who he is by now. But still, answers elude us. This is the story of the Freeway Phantom. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. 
With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. People. Oh, my. Listen. (laughs) This episode, though, better get about a million listens. Because... No lie. This is probably the fourth time. This episode has been a phantom. Yeah. It has been elusive. Yeah. We have tried to record it over and mm-hmm. over and over and over. Yeah. You may have noticed, or maybe you didn't, but this was supposed to be the episode for last week. Yeah. And Before technical difficulties. Mm-hmm. It just disappeared mm-hmm. after we recorded it. Right. Three times. So here right. we are on the fourth one. It's going to be fourth great. Fourth time's a charm. Yeah. Fourth time's a charm. So here we go. So as you guys know, I usually start each case case with a little geography lesson. Mm-hmm. But since today's case takes place in Washington D.C. and most of us, yeah, know, have been there, mm-hmm. yeah, at least what that is, I thought instead I would set the scene and give a little history lesson instead. Okay. So, like any history buff would know, when the United States went to war with Vietnam in 1955, it created a lot of unrest. In our country, especially as the war went on and on and on, Mm because it was a very long war. Mm -hmm. Many Americans opposed the war on moral grounds. They were appalled by the devastation and violence of the war. Other people claimed that we were getting into a foreign civil war. We were interfering with Vietnamese independence. And others just said, this has no clear objective. And basically, it's unwinnable. Mm -hmm. And we see those emotions portrayed in movies like Forrest Gump and in songs like War by Edwin Starr. Which will now be stuck in my head, but yeah. So thanks, Maggie. You're welcome for that. And while younger viewers may think the protests shown in Forrest Gump or movies like that were added for dramatic effect, those protests were actually based on very real happenings during that time. According to Daily News, quote, on October 21st, 1967, over 100,000 protesters marched from the Lincoln Memorial to the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. to protest the Vietnam War. Hippies and veterans alike clashed with U.S. Marshals in one of the largest demonstrations against the war that day, end quote. And this protest was one of the largest of the time. Mm -hmm. And if you look up photos from that, they are like very violent yeah or just they make a big impression on you Mm -hmm. because there are photos of like men burning their draft cards Mm. people fighting with u.s marshals and yeah some of them are very violent but i think it speaks of the heavy emotions of that time oh yeah and these large-scale protests resulted in large-scale arrests and that did not even deter protesters they still took to the streets they continued Another large protest on April 24th, 1971. And that protest had about 175,000 people that came to Washington, D.C. to protest the Vietnam War. That's a huge crowd. Yeah. And I actually read that when the draft system first started for the Vietnam War, they were drafting about 40,000 people a month. Oh, I had no idea it was that many. I didn't either. And I don't know if that continue that's crazy i don't think that we would be able to sustain that no, for that's wild super long periods of time yeah more protests came in may of 1971 in a book called mayday by lawrence roberts he explains that the 1971 mayday protest were a series of large-scale civil 
disobedience acts in Washington, D.C. to protest the war. And these began Monday, May 3rd, and they ended on May 5th. And during those protests, 12,000 people were arrested, which is the largest mass arrest in U.S. history. How did they even have jail space? So they really didn't. They made basically like makeshift areas for these people to go, like fenced off areas. And they didn't have police force to cover that many people. Sadly, these protests, like I just said, did stretch the police force very thin. And it played a major role in the cases that we're going to talk about today. So cases. Yes. So unlike most weeks where we maybe discuss one victim or one family, this week we're discussing six different victims that were all murdered by the same person. (gasps) And the unsolved portion of today's case is we don't know who murdered them. We just know they were all murdered by the same person. So this week you're going to get a brief history of each victim. So not as much detail as we normally go into, or this would be like a four hour long case or episode. (laughs) And you're going to get details about each girl's death, the search to locate each girl, and then um, discoveries that were made on the body or around the body. We're going to do a psychological breakdown of the freeway phantom. That's my favorite part. Yeah, Yeah, it's good. And then theories as to who this person could be. Okay. So the first victim is 13-year-old Carol Spinks. According to Unresolved, she was actually one of eight children. Um, I do know through my research and some things that I listened to that not all of her siblings lived at home. I don't think she was necessarily the youngest, but she wasn't the oldest either. So okay. some had already moved out. And right. And chances are, if you've got eight children, there probably is some age Gap. gaps. Yeah. yeah. I did post a picture of her for you, Allison, because I wanted you to be able to see the smile that just seems to be in every photo that I saw of her. She she's, was, oh, yeah. She's beauty. so precious. She's tilting her head a little bit, which makes her seem a little shy. So cute. And that's how people described her was both shy and petite. And I think she looks, if I had to guess based on that picture, I would say 10. Oh, yeah. She looks very young. But she was actually 13. So I do think that petite factor mm-hmm. played into that. Because mm-hmm. even at 13, she had just barely broken five feet tall. Oh, wow. Yeah. As May approached, Carol was looking forward to summer vacation because she loved jumping rope. She loved playing with the hula hoop. And so she was excited for summer to come so she could do all of her favorite things. Mm. Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all love summer vacation? <laughs> But she was also excited because when school started the following year, she was going to go back to Johnson Junior High School as an eighth grader. So she would be at the very top of the food chain. That's right. Take advantage while you can because once high school hits, you're going back to the bottom. you're back at the bottom. On April 26, 1971, Carol and her sisters, again, could just about taste summertime. It was unusually warm in Washington, D.C. during that time of year. And much to Carol and her sisters' disappointment, they were going to be stuck inside on that beautiful day. Oh no, why? Well, their mom, some may have called her strict. I think it would be better to call her precautious, but she had very strict, uncompromising instructions for the girls to follow. And she had told them that she was going to visit a relative nearby. And Mm -hmm. so her number one rule when she left was Not for anyone or anything could the girls leave their apartment. So she didn't want them out when she was gone because she wanted to know Mm. where they were. I mean, I guess that makes sense. But then, well, 
you know, if I'm going to be gone, I would say the same thing to my 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. I would be like, don't answer the door. Stay right. inside. And I think now your sleuth hound may, may have a little more freedom than Carol did because you could call her uh, right, on her phone right. or track her location. She could at least do something yeah. while she's at the house yeah. <laughs> instead of the 70s when you're like, you can watch TV, but if you yeah. don't like what's on, then sorry. Yeah. But soon after Carol's mom, Alantine, left, Valerie, who was Carol's 24-year-old sister, and she actually just lived across the hallway in their apartment building, okay. came over and asked for a favor. So she told the girls, listen, I'm really busy. I'm too busy to walk to the grocery store. I need a few things. Would one of you be willing to walk to the 7-Eleven and pick these things up for me? And the 7-Eleven wasn't far, just mm-hmm. about half a mile. So that's a really quick walk. Like, what is that? Like a 10 minute walk? If that. Yeah. And she had even said, you know, whoever takes me up on this offer with the change that you have, buy yourself a pop as a treat for mm. like going to get my groceries. I bet that had some appeal. Plus you could be like, Hey mom, my sister, your daughter yeah. asked us to do this. <laughs> your child yeah. told me to. And you're right. It did have, some appeal to them because even though they had been threatened by their mother, if they left the house, the sunshine and the promise of her favorite soda was all Carol needed to be lured out of the house. So she's like, yep, give me your money. <laughs> I got I, you. I got you. Yeah. I'm going to the store. And then she left the family home. And like I mentioned, she didn't have far to walk of just about half a mile. So, you know, she could be there and back in no time at all. Right. But she was nervous. I'm sure as she left, for fear that she may get caught by her mom. <gasps> I didn't even think about that. Because, you know, her mom's walking too. Oh, no. Yeah. So, because she's afraid of running into her mom, because remember, mom is walking herself. Oh, She goodness. wastes no time heading to the 7-Eleven. So, yeah. she crossed into Maryland's Prince George County, which we're going to call PG County because I think that's what most locals say that. Okay. And she proceeded along Wheeler Road. And I know both of us, Allison, and I know neither of us would have been brave enough oh, to no. take the money. No. I've been like, sorry, like, mom says I can't. Right. I joke and I was like, your child, you know, your daughter told us to do this, but I would be like, um, did you not hear what mom said? Yeah. <laughs> I will die in this house before <laughs> I leave it. Right. Thank you. Um, yeah. So she was scared of being caught. And Allison, she did get caught. Oh, no. As she was walking down Wheeler Road, she ran right into her own mother, who oh, was returning back goodness. from her visit. Bad luck. And, of course, her mom is furious yeah. because she was supposed to stay home and she wasn't supposed to leave. And like you said, Carol tries to explain. She's like, Mom, your daughter told me to come out and do this. She didn't have right. time. I was yeah. trying to be helpful. But Allentine wasn't having it. And she told Carol to quickly get what her sister had sent her for and return home. And I'm pretty sure it was one of those things like, you just wait until you get home. Like the punishment you're going to get. I don't know if I'd be walking as fast back home then. (laughs) I might slow down a little bit. We know that Carol did make it to the 7-Eleven. The clerk would later recall to police that he sold Carol a few items, like, like TV dinners and things like that before watching her walk out the door and head in the direction of her home. So we know she's at least going in the right way. And then we also saw a child and their mother, or heard from a child and their mother that saw Carol walking with her groceries in hand in the direction of her house, not long after the clerk reported seeing her leave. Mm. So we have a little bit of a very short Mm -hmm. timeline. Mm -hmm. Now, if we are assuming that Carol walks slowly because, you know, she's afraid 
Right. Now she's going to get in right. trouble. A slow half mile walk for a 13 year old, like 15 minutes. Right. And that's snail's pace. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So by the time her mom got home, Carol should have at least been leaving the 7-Eleven because she just had a few items to pick up. So Alentine waits and waits, but the minutes ticked by and Carol didn't get home in the amount of time her mom felt was reasonable for her to be Mm -hmm. there. And soon her anger began turning into worry, though. With each minute that ticked by, she knew that no more time needed to be wasted. And when the minutes finally turned into hours, she actually called the police to report her daughter as missing. Oh, goodness. I can't imagine making that call. I know. And I can't imagine how frustrated she was. Oh, no. Police told her that because Carol was scared that she was going to get in trouble, she probably (sighs) just ran away from home. Carol is not a runaway. Yep. And they say if she's not back you know, in a reasonable time, then give us a call and we'll send somebody out. No, oh, I hate that. Well, Alentine, like you, just didn't believe that Carol would run away and she was so mad. So she actually got together a group of friends and organized a neighborhood search party for her missing daughter that night. But the volunteers didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. The wait for answers wasn't really long, just six days on May 1st, 1971. So six days later, her body was discovered by a group of kids playing in a freeway embankment, which doesn't sound like a very safe place to play. No, no, it sure doesn't. They were playing near St. Elizabeth's Hospital and they found, or she was stumbled upon by a little boy and she was in the same clothes she had the day that she left home, except she was missing her shoes. Weird. So according to Unresolved, quote, as the group of kids were playing in the area just off Interstate 295's northbound lanes, an 11-year-old boy wandered off. He ended up walking roughly 1,500 feet south of Sweetland Parkway towards a grassy embankment along the Anacostia Freeway, where he discovered the body of the murdered young girl. A short distance down the road, he was able to flag down a police officer who reported to the scene. End quote. Wow. And she was sadly, I think this adds just an extra element of sadness Mm -hmm. she was found just a mile away from where she had been walking it was just a little less than a mile away so she had almost made it home oh almost to safety yeah of course an autopsy was done and again what it revealed was heartbreaking the autopsy report showed that she had been sexually and physically assaulted prior to her murder (sighs) um, but her cause of death was labeled as strangulation Mm. Even more heartbreaking, the coroner determined that because of food contents in her stomach, she had been kept alive for at least three days before she was strangled to oh death. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I think and she And that makes oranges. it even worse because then you're like, she knows something bad is going to happen mm-hmm. to her. She just doesn't know when. And you know, she probably cried that whole time. Oh. It's so sad. The only evidence found on her body that could be used to make a connection to a suspect was an unidentified green fiber from something like maybe a rug or the upholstery of a car or a sweater. It at least gives me some hope because there is evidence. Right. At least. So I'm hoping you'll tell me it's linked to something later. Yeah, later. (laughs) So if you remember from my history lesson... Around the same time Carol went missing, all those major protests oh, yeah. were taking place in Washington, D.C. So we had those record-breaking arrests, 
Police were stretched really thin. And as a result, many people and Carol's family included felt that her case did not get the attention that it deserved. Mm -hmm. And her older sister, Valerie, actually felt so guilty that she took up walking that route to 7-Eleven, hoping that her sister's killer would approach her as well so that she could finally know who he was and bring that person to justice. That breaks my heart, too, that she feels guilty and she shouldn't. Because you can't know something like that's going to happen. And then, you know, imagine that thinking, like, I'm going to do this. So hopefully he'll try to take me too, just so I can know. know. Wow. But that never happened. And sadly, this was just the first in a long string of Washington, D.C. killings at the time. Mm. On July 8th, 1971, 16-year-old Darlena Johnson from Congress Heights was abducted while en route to her summer job at Oxon Hill Recreation Center. This was just three months after Carol's murder. As she left home that day, she told her mom that she was staying the night at the rec center because they were actually hosting a sleepover for kids in the community, and that would require her to be there overnight. She was going to help with that. This girl also looks super sweet, mm-hmm. and she kind of has like a shy vibe too. Yeah, I think they all have some similarities. Mm-hmm. Just like Carol, Darlena didn't have to walk very far to get to her job or her destination. She worked, like I said, in Oxon Hill, which sat in PG County, so the same place as Carol. And much like the case of Carol, she had walked that route several times. She could probably have walked it blindfolded, Mm -hmm. but on this particular day, she never made it to work. (gasps) Oh, no. And her mom thinks that she's staying there overnight, which means she's not even going to realize that her daughter's taken. Yeah. So that is one heartbreaking thing for her because she does stay overnight. Her disappearance isn't reported until the next day when she didn't come home. So we've lost a lot of time. Whereas with Carol, it was just, you know. Right. Nearly immediate. Yeah. Yeah. Hers is probably 24 hours or so. Oh, man. When news of her possible abduction spread, of course, so did the rumors surrounding her disappearance. One witness claimed that he saw her with her boyfriend that afternoon. I did read that just in one source. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they investigated that claim. And just because she was with her boyfriend, I don't know how that would really affect Uh, Right. She's still gone. Unless we're thinking maybe he had something to do with it. Another witness told police that around the time... That she would have been walking to work, they saw Darlena in a dark colored car with an African American male. But all of those leads turned into dead ends. Mm. And again, police pulled were pulled in just too many directions. And I really don't think the case was given the attention that it deserved. Oh, yeah. By mid-July, no real headway had been made in Darlena's case. That was until, according to Unresolved, an employee of the D.C. Department of Highways and Traffic began experiencing car troubles. He pulled off to the side of I-295, or I-295, not too far away from where the body of Carol had been found a few months prior, and within mm. moments discovered a body lying in the grass. Oh. So, so this, this spot though is like the chosen spot of this perpetrator. Yeah. And that's going to come up in the profile that we'll talk about why this person may like this particular area. Oh, it's a little bit creepy. Okay. So once this employee discovered the body, he called and let the DC police know, Hey, I, you know, stumbled upon this body. You need to send somebody out to check it. 
And he was actually the mm-hmm. second person to make that call that day. The second person? Yeah. So I don't know. What happened to the first person? Well, like, I don't know if maybe I called at noon, you called at 1215. Okay. You know, maybe just okay. somebody had time to get right. out there. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that those calls came in quickly. Let's hope. Yeah. But further evidence would say probably not. But we'll say that for right now. I read that when police went to the location, they didn't even exit the vehicle to investigate. They just kind of peered through the windows. And when they didn't see anything, they were like, well, we've done our job. Let's go on back home. Wow. Wow. Peered through their windows. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Duty done. Check. Check that box. Wow. By this point, though, in the summer, Washington, D.C. is extremely hot. Anthony and I went one summer, and I thought I was going to melt. I can only imagine the damage that would do to a decomposing body. Oh, yeah. So, several days now have passed, and that D.C. Department of Mm -hmm. Highways employee is driving past, and he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to stop. And just see if they've done anything. Like, what's up? Oh, my gosh. So, he was shocked to find that nothing had been done. Oh. In fact, the body was still in the same place that oh. it had been when he first placed his call. Oh, I'd be like, listen, I, I'm not usually like this, but somebody needs to get fired. Yeah. Like, somebody is not doing their job. Yeah, somebody's not doing what they need to be doing. Mm-hmm. So, he makes another call to police, and this time they do respond. Thankfully. The body was recovered and located only 15 feet, or about five and a half meters, from where Carol's body had been found. It did take them a while to identify who the body belonged to because it was so badly decomposed that they had to use clothing and I even read that they removed the fingertips <gasps> to do fingerprinting because the body was just in such well, rough Well, maybe shape. if you had responded the first time, yeah. it would have been in better condition. And through those methods, they were able to determine that it was Darlena. Just like Carol, she was found in the clothes that she had left the house in that day. Also, just like Darlena, she had been sexually assaulted. Oh. And even though the coroner was unable to say an official cause of death, they would later state that there was evidence of strangulation. Mm. So clearly, we can yep. see that the Same killer method. was familiar with the area and comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. comfortable with that area. Yeah, so you got the area connection and that same method of killing. Mm-hmm. But it's actually going to be a while before police connect the dots between the two cases. I don't understand how. They're 15 feet from one another. And like not even multiple months. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mentioned that with each killing, the Freeway Phantom became more gruesome. And we'll really see that come into focus with Brenda Crockett. Brenda was 10 years old and... She had been sent to the grocery store on July 27th, 1971, but she never came home from that grocery store trip. When she failed to return home, her mom is, you know, is like, you know what? Something is up. Mm -hmm. Brenda would be home by now. Mm -hmm. So she's like, I'm going to go look. And she, her thinking is just in case she comes back, I want you, the stepdad and her baby sister to stay at home. So somebody's there. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Because, you know, she's 10. So right. her mom's thinking, maybe she didn't have I don't want her to get even more scared yeah. if she comes home and nobody's here. Right. 
So one parent goes, one parent stays. Oh, and there's Brenda. And she cute? She looks like a doll. Oh, she does. The little bow. Oh, I love the bow. About an hour after Brenda left home, the telephone rang. And before the stepfather can get to the line, Brenda's seven-year-old sister, Bertha, answered the phone. And it was Brenda <gasps> on the line. Wasn't expecting that. I know. Brenda told her sister that she was in Virginia and that a white man had quote unquote snatched her up. Uh, but Brenda said her kidnapper had called a taxi and was going to send her home. <gasps> and then she just hung up on her sister. Okay. That is a super bizarre conversation. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, Bertha's only seven. So right. she doesn't fully understand. Right. What's going on. Yeah. The importance of that phone call or what's going on. But thankfully, Brenda called the home again. This time, her stepfather uh, answered She called the call. a second time. Mm-hmm. Also wasn't expecting that. Stepdad answers. Sleuth Hounds, I know we ask you all to trust us a lot, but seriously, you have to trust me on this one. You need a Blinjet 2 in your life. I have used mine nearly every single day since I got it over the holidays. We cannot say enough about this product. Blinjet 2 is portable and it fits in a cup holder. This means that you can save precious minutes in the morning or before going to the gym by blending your smoothie, your iced coffee, or your protein shake in your office or even in your car. Good things come in small packages, sleuth hounds, because even though the Blinjet 2 is tiny, it's powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like frozen fruit or ice with ease. Blinja 2 is also whisper quiet, so when that midday urge for an iced coffee hits, you won't disturb the people in the cubicle next to you at work. Plus, it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C. And best of all, Blinjet 2 cleans itself. And what more could we ask for? Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. With more than 30 colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Blinjet 2 to complement just about any style. So what are you waiting for? Go to Blinjet.com and grab yours today. Be sure to use the promo code COFFINCASES12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blinjet 2. If you have a smoothie lover in your life, you want to make that New Year's resolution to build muscle and lose fat, whatever the reason, blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to Blendjet.com and use the code COFFEEINCASES12, all one word, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. They guarantee you'll love it, and we do too or your money back. Shop today by going to the link or clicking the link in our show notes and get the best deal ever. There are so many times when I want to do something digitally, like read a book or take notes, but I miss the feel of paper. I've tried journaling on my iPad, which is a great New Year's resolution, by the way, but the feel of the screen did give me the same satisfaction as writing on paper until I got paper-like. Paperlike is a screen protector that makes an iPad feel exactly like you're writing or drawing on paper. It is perfect for note takers, journalers, and artists. For anyone who draws and writes using an iPad and an Apple Pencil. The surface of the Paperlike is coated using nanodots, tiny microbeads that are designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag your Apple Pencil across the screen. And every Paperlike comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need to replace it. It's exactly what I needed to help me find joy in journaling on my iPad because now it feels like paper. 
To pick up your paper like, head over to paperlike.com forward slash coffee and cases. Click buy paper like and select your iPad size. From now until the end of January, paper like is also including their digital pro planner bundle at no extra cost for every order that is placed through the paper like store. Plus, shipping is completely free. Are you ready to do more with your iPad? Then head over to paperlike.com slash cases to get started. So she does make the second phone call and their conversation went a little like this. Okay. She asked her stepfather, did my mother see me? Uh, Which I think is strange. See her where? Did my mother see me? Well, he's like confused just as you are so he frantically answered how could your mother have seen you if you're in virginia oh which is what she told her sister bertha and so then he's like put me on the phone with whoever you're with okay to speak with them yeah and she according to him just in like a little whisper said well i'll see you and then hung up the phone the line went dead Oh my gosh, I'd be freaking out at this point. Yeah, and I would be like, we need technology to trace this phone Right, right. Retired investigator Jenkins believes that the second call was proof that the killer was nearby, and he thought that he'd been spotted by Brenda's mom, because remember, she's already out Mm, searching the neighborhood for her daughter. So that's why he makes Brenda ask, did mom see me? Wow. Um, Some people also hypothesize that these calls could have just been used to throw off the investigation. I don't know. They seem so weird, though. Like, what direction would they be trying to lead them in? Right. And just, I guess, maybe make them confused. Maybe. But I feel like they would already be confused. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, Brenda's body was discovered at 5.50 a.m. the next day by a hitchhiker. Oh, wow. So that's way quicker Mm. than the other victims. Yeah. Brenda was shoeless, so just like the other two, and she was located around U.S. Route 50, which was near the Baltimore-Washington Parkway in PG County, Maryland. So So we're still in the county. mm -hmm. Mm. She had also been raped, and she had been strangled. But this time, she actually had a scarf that was knotted around her neck. I don't know if it was hers or not. Mm. But like you said, she had only been missing about eight hours. The others have been missing, you know, a couple days. Right. Most unusually, her body appeared to have been washed prior to its abandonment along U.S. Route 50. She wasn't hmm. found with any shoes, but police didn't really find that odd because her mom had reported that she thought Brenda went to the store barefoot. So she wouldn't have had them on anyways. Oh. But authorities said that her feet seemed to be incredibly clean oh. for someone who had been walking with no shoes on. So obviously whoever did this then... Like, that's how they knew they mm-hmm. that he bathed her. And a lot of the girls were exceptionally clean. This is really bizarre, too. Like, the first victim, he's obviously feeding her. And mm-hmm. then this victim, he's bathing her. That's, I don't know. It's almost like a, I don't even know how to take that. I almost wonder if he maybe knew them. Mm. And, you know kind of wanted to in a sick way take care of them just like carol experts were able to find small green fibers on some of brenda's clothing which again hints to links with the previous two well you know hopefully at this point they were like hey we have a trend no they weren't (laughs) oh my goodness 
Nino Yates was a 12-year-old girl who was walking home around 7 from the Safeway store on October 1st of 1971 when she was abducted. Nino was so cute, Allison. Oh. She looked like she would be the life of any room she walked into. She's the cutest. Her little bangs. I know. And that bow. So adorable. She looks very prim and proper, too. And she was only in sixth grade. She was at Kelly Miller Junior High School. She lived with her father and her stepmother in an apartment in Northeast along Benning Road. Nino's mom had just given birth, and so... Both her mom and her stepfather are now juggling a teenager, oh. which I know you understand. Yes. And a newborn. Yeah, oh, and a baby. my. Bless your hearts. So as a result, Nino had been given a little bit more independence, but she was handling that with grace because that came with a little more responsibility okay. as well. And she was kind of like, you know what? I'm going to be another one of the grownups and I'm going to help when they need me to help. She looks like that would be her yeah. attitude. Too. Yeah. Like I'm a helper. Yeah. On October 1st, she had been sent to the store to buy sugar, flour, and paper plates by her parents. A store clerk would later tell police that she was in the store because he recognized her from the photographs. And he stated that she had purchased those items that evening and left just about around 7 p.m. Mm. Allison, the grocery store was less than one block away from her house. Oh, my goodness. There's no... I mean... No part of me would be like, okay, something bad is going to happen in one block. Right, because I feel like that's almost me walking, you know, two houses up from where I live right now. Like, that's such a short distance. What could possibly happen? When she wasn't home rather quickly, her family, though, knew something was up. Mm -hmm. And less than three hours after she was reported missing, so they waste no time reporting her missing. Yeah. And then three hours after police get the report, her remains were found off a shoulder or off the shoulder of Pennsylvania Avenue, again in PG County. This is now we're quick. I mean, this mm-hmm. is almost immediate where, so there's none. It's so bizarre because the other two where there's like the bathing and the, the feeding, there's like some care. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As demented as that sounded. Yeah. But here it's like with this little girl, it, it's, it's immediate like strangulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming she was strangled because the other ones were. She was strangled to death. She was fully clothed in the clothes she left the house in. She did not have her shoes on, so the shoes are missing. And they were never found. So is this like a trophy taken by? Yeah, I almost wonder. And I read, I think we'll talk about it later on, there were some other trophies that potentially were taken. Oh, During the autopsy, the coroner was able to determine that strangulation had been excessive. In fact, her esophagus had been broken from the Mm. force the killer used to strangle her. So her esophagus was crushed. Oh, my goodness. Just like with the other victims, she had been sexually assaulted prior to her death. And green fibers were located on her clothing. So we have yet another link to the previous. Okay. Now, please tell me. Please tell me, Maggie, that they make the connection. So it is after the death of Nino that the D.C. police finally admit there's a serial killer on the loose. Oh, my goodness. Took them long enough. And since the kidnappings and discoveries were located close to the freeway, he became known as the Freeway Phantom. Mm. I did read that one witness reported finding Nino's groceries outside the store, just placed kind of on the sidewalk, almost like she had seen someone she knew. She put the groceries down and got in the Mm. car with them, which... Could potentially be true. 
And I guess that's why you were saying, you know, you think maybe they knew Mm-hmm. The perpetrator, but because wonder, otherwise it'd be knocked all over, and no, they're not going to take right. the time to be like, let's, let's oh, let's pick this these. bag back yeah. up that fell. But yeah. I wonder if the girls would have been in the same circle to know the oh, same person, right. you know? Right. It was reported that she was seen in a blue Volkswagen, so we have at least a car we could potentially be looking for. So this is giving me Ted Bundy vibes and I say that because I know he's a little bit later in the 70s but he would trick the female victims by doing things like dressing up as a police officer Mm -hmm. and so you know maybe these young girls even though they might not be in the same circle they might trust the same type of person right the next victim is Brenda Denise Woodard. So we have two Brendas. Oh, okay. So we need to keep that straight. Mm-hmm. She was an ambitious girl. She had really high goals for herself. She'd actually started a typing class at school to improve her work skills for job applications post high school. Oh, smart. She was social and she liked to spend a lot of time with her friends. And she literally looks like a Barbie doll. Yeah, she does. Like she has the slender, like long neck mm-hmm. and the full mm-hmm. lips and the cheekbones. Mm hmm. Yeah. Looks like Barbie. She looks like they took this picture off the package of yeah. a Barbie doll. Yeah. On the night she went missing, she was doing exactly what she loved to be doing. She had dinner with a classmate on November 15th, 1971. She was 18 years old, and the two actually ended up boarding the bus to go home around 1130. Um, and she lived just off Maryland Avenue. So she's a little bit older than yeah. the other victims. She's almost a little bit of a like outlier, a little. Mm. And she's getting on a bus. She's not mm. walking. I read that normally this friend that she was with would drive her home when they would go out. But his car was in the shop, so oh. she had to take the bus home. I don't know how close the bus stop was to her house. Oh, though, okay. So she still could have potentially had a little ways oh, Okay, a little bit of walk. They rode together on the bus for a few blocks, but eventually they had to split up because Brenda needed to transfer to another bus, and I never would have made it home. I would have just been oh like on the continual bus right. because I would not have known where to go. <laughs> yeah. We know Brenda got on the next bus because people were able to identify her based off okay. her picture. But that's pretty much all we know about the day that she went oh, missing. So she might have gotten off of the bus and been walking and mm-hmm. somebody picked her up, but it could have even been somebody... Like well, she had to have gotten her. off of the bus. Right, that it could have not been at her traditional stop. Right, that's true. That's true. I feel that as time went on, the killer started murdering his victims quicker and quicker. Oh, and yeah. we've talked about that. Yeah, the last one was just a few hours. Just like with Nino, very quickly after she went missing, her body was discovered. So she's discovered just six hours after being reported missing. Wow. Sadly, a police officer discovered her body, which had been stabbed multiple times oh. and strangled. Near Hmm. PG County Hospital. This is a long route 202 on the Baltimore-Washington Parkway. So So, very different. Yeah, with the stabbing. But weren't weren't we near PG County Hospital? You're near St. Elizabeth Hospital. Oh, St. Elizabeth Hospital. Mm -hmm. Okay. But we were near the Baltimore-Washington Parkway. Yeah. This is actually a very highly traveled roadway. And I read in one source, now I don't know exactly how this went down, that... Her mom traveled this road quite a bit, and 
this is how she discovers that the body was her daughter. I don't know if she stopped because she saw it roped off. I don't know if they came up to her and was like, you know, we've discovered a body. And then they figure out that Mm. she's the mom. I also don't know if this is true because, like I said, I only saw it in one source. But I thought I would share. Right. And her murder, obviously, has been the most brutal. Right. Because none of the other ones have been stabbed. Right. And she also had been strangled, so almost like overkill. Yeah, definitely. Authorities would note that her crime scene was incredibly gruesome. Her clothes were stained with blood. She had a total of six stab wounds on various parts of her body. Um, Investigators found defensive marks on her hands and arms, indicating there was some kind of struggle between Brenda and her killer. So unlike the other victims who were shoeless she was still wearing her shoes there was a coat that had been placed over her chest she had not been raped and thus far all the other victims had been are we sure she is a victim of the same perpetrator a lot of people have asked that but police are really adamant that she is and i don't Mm. know why they think that because so many differences it's so different wow but much like the other victims she had been strangled Mm. So I don't know if maybe that's, right. but I feel like that is just I know with the stabbing really broad too? to make right. that connection yeah. thing. I agree. Do you think? Because obviously the coat over her would tend to say that she knew her mm-hmm. killer, and they're ashamed of what they've done. Mm-hmm. I wonder if she knew who had done this to the other girls and confronted the person about it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder too if that's why they didn't rape her because mm-hmm. maybe they knew her on mm-hmm. more of a personal mm-hmm. level. Interesting. Though Brenda's murder, like we said, had several differences, the most vital thing to police was that the killer left a note with her body. Oh, which that's new. He hadn't done previously. Yeah. They even believed that he had dictated the message for Brenda to write out. According to Penn State, quote, investigators would later theorize that this note was written by Brenda herself with the FBI later linking it to other writings from her. Mm. It appeared to be in her own handwriting, written in pencil, and seemed to be written on a piece of paper that had been torn out of her notebook. Likely, it had been dictated to her by the killer, end quote. Wow. Well, yeah, because the killer's probably like, they can't know what my handwriting looks like. You have to Mm -hmm. write this. And here's what the message said. Quote, this is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. Freeway phantom. Okay. Heightened vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Tantamount. But then freeway is hyphenated. Right. That's weird. Hmm. And the note thing really sticks with me. And it does other people as well, because D.C. police detective Jenkins claimed that since Brenda's handwriting didn't explain, like, excessive stress. Oh. You know, she would have been shaky. Right. Had she realized the extent of what's going on. She also thinks that she likely knew her killer and didn't know the gravity of her situation at the time. Like, oh, this is just a joke or, you know, something like that. But then how do you get somebody to do that without them? Or maybe she did At some point, I'd be freaking out. Yeah, because she's 16, so you would, or 18, so you would think that she would know. Yeah. Like the seriousness of Mm -hmm. the situation Mm -hmm. that she's in. Hmm. So I don't know about that one. When Brenda's body was examined, the coroner found two different hair samples 
So one was a Caucasian man. The other they claim belonged to an African-American male. Mm -hmm. Given the evidence at the crime scene, one would think that, you know, answers are close at hand. Obviously, we don't have the DNA technology at the time. But eventually, I'm sure they hoped it would catch up and we would have some type of profile. The last known victim of the Freeway Phantom was killed nearly a year later on September 5th, 1972. This time, he claimed 17-year-old Diane Williams, and Diane was a senior at Baylou High School and was everything most teenage girls, you know, are. Mm -hmm. She was smart, and she was starting to feel that string of independence that's associated with being a senior in high school, and obviously from her picture, she was a fashion icon. She looks like she'd be in, like, a beauty magazine. Her hair is everything. Mm -hmm. And those, the big collars. (laughs) Yeah, very 1970s. Yeah. She was also fiercely loyal to her family and friends. And to give you just a small clue of how much Diane's family meant to her, she had actually cooked her family dinner on September 5th, 1972, before she went to her boyfriend's house. That's sweet. So very sweet. After spending several hours visiting her boyfriend, Diane left to go home. And according to several sources, Diane's boyfriend actually walked her to the bus stop along Martin Luther King Avenue. Buses again. Yeah. The two kissed goodbye, and Diane boarded the bus headed towards her home on Haley Trace, but she never made it home, Allison. Oh, man. So, again, gets on the bus, and we don't know what happens after Mm -hmm. that. And we know she does because her boyfriend waits until she gets on the bus. wow. As you can probably guess from recent victims, it wasn't long before Diane's body was found. She was found the very next day along I-295. So, we're, again, back at the same place by a trucker that had pulled alongside the road, and she was found less than two miles away from her home, so just south of the Washington, D.C. and Maryland border. It's almost like taunting because they're so close Mm -hmm. to home and they're so close to safety. When police arrived on the scene, they immediately noted that Diane was still in the clothes she had been wearing the last time she'd been seen alive. And like so many others we've talked about tonight, her shoes were missing, Hmm. or so investigators thought. Uh But just a short time after they start looking around the scene, her shoes are located relatively close by her, and they seem to have just been gently placed there. And that, to me, is like the killer saying, you know, you think you know my pattern, but what do you think about this? And just sits the shoes beside of her. Which I think would be super smart. Yeah. Yeah, because it throws everything Mm -hmm. off. And if they had come off in a struggle, they definitely wouldn't be gently placed side by side. So... And he didn't keep them as like a trophy as he did the other ones. Yeah. I'm sure by this point you can tell us what's going to be found in the autopsy report. Um, strangulation, yes, I'm guessing, died, yeah. as cause of death. Um, potentially sexual assault, because we've had that on most victims, mm-hmm. just not the last one. She actually had no signs of sex- sexual assault. So I wonder if it's so both of the older. Well, these are the two older or maybe girls. He's just Attracted to younger oh, girls. Wow. In one documentary I watched, police did find some semen in Diane's clothing, and they just assume it's her boyfriend because she's been there. But they, they just to assume him. it? Well, they talk to him and they're like, hey, we found this. Is this yours? But he says that they didn't engage in any type of sexual activity before Diane went home. So, so it's not hopefully his. they tested it. Well, they didn't have the technology. Oh, then, right. But they well, did hopefully they it. saved it. For a while. Oh. Soon rewards were being offered for information that would lead to an arrest because, as you can probably gather, the public are 
outraged oh, at this point. Yes, and probably like um whoever is doing this, we've got to catch him and soon. Right. I mean, he's literally snatching kids off the street and killing right. them. And they're doing ordinary things. They're going to the grocery store. Yeah. They're with a friend and they're just disappearing a few miles from where they live. And so someone they're thinking has to know something. Right. And because of those efforts from the local media, from friends and family, those tips did start to trickle in. They set up a hotline and even some came in through mail. Okay. But those tips quickly fizzled out or were not even viable to begin mm. with. Allison, I read in an article called Freeway Phantom Murders, DC's first serial, serial killer was never caught. A new book hopes to change that. Oh my goodness, these titles. <laughs> Posted by WUSA9, it said, quote, We definitely think it can be solved. Somebody knows something, Victoria Hester, who spent two years researching the case, said. And she researched that case with her father, Blaine. They are convinced someone still has some type of key evidence. Mm -hmm. So Blaine, the father, said that he kept textbooks from one of the girls, curlers from another one, shoelaces from one oh. of the girls. So somebody's family somewhere, even if this person's dead by now, you're cleaning out their stuff and right. you're like, look at all this junk. But really, mm. it could be key evidence. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, we were talking about trophies and not only the shoes, but there are other things that are being mm -hmm. kept. Yeah. And they go on to say in that article, the geographic epicenter of the crimes, the anchor point of where the victims lived, where they were abducted and where their bodies were found was St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital. Oh. So, maybe somebody, we know he knows that area in PG mm -hmm. County. So, maybe somebody who knows the streets where these girls were taken, too. Or maybe somebody who had a stay at St. Elizabeth's yeah, Mental Hospital. Right. The FBI had started to assist with the investigation after the fourth murder of Nino. So up until this point, it was just the local Metro police that had done the majority of the investigation. But with Nino and the DC police saying, you know, this is a serial killer, mm -hmm. the FBI stepped in. According to Grunge, quote, though the FBI originally assigned about two dozen agents to the case, many were unfortunately pulled off the matter after the Watergate scandal grew up the Capitol. So it's like everything... Right. Everything is pulling police away yeah. from their ability to investigate this case like they should. And I mean, I know Watergate obviously was huge. Right. These protests were huge. But these deaths, also huge. Mm -hmm. And also needed yeah. police assistance. Right. With the help from FBI, a profile was created for the Freeway Phantom. And here are some of those key details from that profile. Okay. So the FBI believes that he would have been a loner motivated by anger and an anger that was focused on society as a whole. wonder how they, I don't know. I mean, I know he said he has anger against women in the note, but. Hmm. How do we get to the whole? Yeah. Right. They think he might have received psychiatric treatment to help with his depression and anger issues against women. Okay. Well, we've got the connection to the mental mm -hmm. hospital and the comment about women. So I understand that one. He likely felt that society had once wronged him. He probably tried to reach out to a person in power to discuss this wrongdoing, but that person probably just blew him off, thus fueling his anger and even perhaps leading to these murders. These are oddly specific. I where I'm like, why a person of I almost power? Feel like they're, why? Like, like they know who it is and they're just describing this person. Yeah. You know? 
Obviously, they think he lived or lives in the D.C. area. Okay, I get that one. He obviously, they think, owned a vehicle because he drove the Mm -hmm. girls to and from. Mm -hmm. And there are sightings of Mm -hmm. cars or they clearly just disappear. It's believed he took the girls to an abandoned house to rape them multiple times before killing them. I don't know where we get the abandoned house I don't either. The FBI thinks it's possible he could have wore a mask and didn't show his face to the girls. But then, I feel like in the case with the note, that girl would have been scared. Right. Yeah, there would have been signs of distress. And I feel like somebody shows up with a mask, you're screaming. Yeah, they're getting kicked in the pee-pee. Corner reports of the Freeway Phantom's victims tell us that almost all of them were brutally raped. With penetration up to nine inches deep, <gasps> but both vaginally and anally. Oh my gosh! So he is he using like an item? I obviously. think he would almost have to. Oh. And they say due to the brutality of the crimes, they think that he's a psychopath. Obviously, uh, yeah. With a deep hatred towards women, again, obviously, but right. children as yeah. well, not just women, but young yeah. girls, ten. Hmm. They think the killer may have had military experience due to the skill displayed during the abductions because they go pretty quietly because they're in public areas. Right. And there's other than like Mm -hmm. green fibers, there's There's not a whole lot. Yeah. And lastly, they think the perpetrator might have served in the army during the Vietnam War and may have been responsible for war crimes like rape or murder during some of that time Mm. there. Interesting. And you know, I'm sitting here thinking, if that's the case and he was in the Vietnam War, that could potentially explain why there was almost a year. Oh, yeah. In between the two, because mm-hmm. he could have been deployed at that mm-hmm. time. I don't know how long their deployments were. Yeah, that absolutely could be the case. So there are four potential, like, groups or people that we're going to talk about that could potentially be the freeway. Family. Okay, ready. So the first one is the Green Vega Rapists. A gr- uh, this is a group? This is a gang. And they're called the Rapists. Mm-hmm. And um, I read, I think it was either 100 or 1,000 rapes that they <gasps> were responsible for in the Washington, D.C. Oh, area. Am I that naive that I had no idea that gangs like that Well, I didn't know that existed. you would have like specific gangs to rape people. I didn't either. Which is crazy to me. So, through the investigation and inmate knowledge brought to investigators, they start honing in on this group and they become the focal point because this gang, a lot of them were already obviously in jail. The Mm -hmm. Green Vega gang members were individually interviewed by homicide detectives at Lorton Prison in Virginia. And mm-hmm. I don't know why the reasoning behind it, but a lot of the members of this gang were in this prison. So I'm not really sure why we would house them together. Yeah, but we did. So mm. yeah, they're there. Mm. Detectives were surprised when during the interview, one member implicated another gang member who said that person had told him very specific information regarding the rape and murder of some of the victims. Oh. Yeah, why would they have snitched? Like, why yeah. wouldn't they be loyal? That's and especially weird. if they're in the same prison. Right. Because you're going to be yeah. running into them, probably. Yeah. Or at least news is going to travel through the grapevine. Mm-hmm. This particular inmate was also serving a sentence at that prison, but he agreed to be interviewed, given that his name would remain anonymous. He's like, I don't want my name to come out. And mm. detectives, detectives agree. 
So he identified the man who gave him the information, the date and location of the crime, and some details that were not provided to the public and would have oh. only been known by the murderer oh. and possibly detectives. Okay. Police even went as far to take this inmate out on location so he could pinpoint certain information. But, again, a but. At the time, there was a large push, it was election time, from oh, political gosh. candidates. To get the case solved, because obviously, you know, anything that's in the news or like on the mind of the public, they're going to hype it up. Well, listen, I mean, let's just take this as a lesson for all families out there of victims or missing persons who need uh, more exposure around election time is the time to make the Mm -hmm. case to local candidates Mm -hmm. to get them to share about your family member's story because that would get them the publicity. And I know for, for the political candidate, it's the wrong reason, but listen, I, I just do whatever yeah, I could, whatever to, you get, could to get mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. focus on your family. Right. So, I mean, it makes sense that these candidates were like, okay, let's get this solved because then that looks good for them. Like right. they played a part in it being right. Solved. The bad thing is though, on an outing with the inmate, they had the radio on and the radio station gave an update on the case. And during that update, it mentioned that police were working with an unnamed inmate at the prison. Oh my goodness. And that person had provided them with important information regarding one of these murders. (gasps) Oh no. And after that announcement, that inmate refused to work with police again. Well, yeah. Well, thankfully though, a lot of what he told police ended up not being true. So. Oh. It's not like he was that vital anyways. Right, right. Suspects, I guess we could say two and three. Okay. Would be Edward Selman and Tommy Simmons. Now, in full transparency, Selman also appeared as Sullivan in a lot of the research. So so we don't even really know his last we name. We don't know his last name. I don't okay. know how we don't know that, but we're going to call him Selman. Selman and Simmons were two ex-cops that were arrested for the murder of Angela Barnes. Angela was a 14-year-old girl that disappeared on July 12, 1971. So our dates and our ages ages. are right where they should be. And this is just days after Darlena Johnson had gone missing. Mm. Like the other victims, Angela was walking (gasps) alone and was headed home after visiting a friend, but she never made it. Her body was found the next day in Maryland. Okay. There are a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Unlike the other girls who were strangled, well, most of the other girls, mm-hmm. Angela was shot in the head. Okay. Well, that doesn't fit. But the one girl was stabbed. And for a while, mm-hmm. the, Angela is listed as one of the freeway phantoms victims oh, for a while. Or, well, yeah. Um, But then... In 1974, Selman and Simmons were arrested for the crime and charged with a murder. And at that point, they're saying she is not connected with the freeway phantom and these two men are not the freeway phantom. Hmm. I don't know what led them to that. Right. To to say, okay, well, even though there are all these similarities. It's not them. Hmm. And I almost think what makes sense for it to be two men. Or two people. Right. Well, yeah, because then you could like cover a mouth, Mm -hmm. overpower. Mm Hmm. Hmm. Suspect four is Robert Askins. In March of 1977, a 58-year-old computer technician, Robert Elwood Askins, was charged with abducting and then raping a 24-year-old woman inside his Washington, D.C. home. So a little bit older, but there's some things that make you think, "Hmm, maybe. Okay. Homicide detective Lloyd Davis proceeded to question Atkins and learned that he'd actually been charged with murder on some other occasions. Some other. Okay. Yeah. Multiple, actually. So, of course, he's like, well, could this dude be the freeway? Right. And his story went a little bit like this. 
On December 28, 1938, a then 19-year-old Askins was attending Minor Teachers College, and he had a pretty promising future from what I read, but something in him just seemed to snap because one day he served cyanide-laced whiskey to five (gasps) prostitutes at a brothel, and one of them, who was 31 years old, died. Oh, my gosh. And then on December 30th, so just two days later, he stabbed to death another prostitute, (gasps) 26-year-old Elizabeth Johnson, at that same brothel. Oh, my goodness. I don't know why he wasn't arrested in those two days. Yeah. You know, he wasn't. Wow. When he was finally arrested, he told police that he hated women. Oh, that was our, yeah, the profile. Mm Mm-hmm. He was placed under mental observation at Washington, D.C.'s Gallagher Hospital, which would be the mm-hmm. profile again. Mm-hmm. Mental instability. While there, he broke free of his restraints and assaulted three orderlies with a chair before he could be subdued. Wow. During his trial, it was revealed that he'd been a police informant aiding law enforcement in the arrest of prostitutes. In April of 1939, Askins was found criminally insane and committed to none other than St. Elizabeth's Hospital. (gasps) Which is right near everything. Yep. Wow. Askins was released in 1951, just five months after that release. He strangled a 42-year-old Laura Clark to death. Yep. So he's released after five months and then goes on to kill again. Right. So obviously I don't think he was criminally insane. Wow. Per unresolved quote, he was indicted for this murder in 1954, accused of several other assaults of similar circumstance, and then retried for the 1938 murder, it having been determined that he was indeed sane upon committing the act. Despite claiming he intended the cyanide for himself, planning suicide, he was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 20 years to life. This conviction was overturned in 1958. Overturned. hmm Man. The only thing that's holding me back, though, are the ages. The ages. And, yeah. you know, that most of these women were prostitutes, prostitutes instead of, you know, these young girls. Mm-hmm. After the 1977 rape charge, Askins' home was searched by police for a possible connection to the Freeway Phantom murders. Court documents were found in his desk drawer where a judge used the word tantamount, which oh. is uncommon, and we saw that in that note. Yeah, so maybe he like looked it up, and he's like, mm-hmm. oh. Mm. Police even went as far as to dig up part of his backyard looking for evidence in connection to the Freeway Phantom Oh, wow, Phantom so they really thought he yeah. was connected. You know, because he took those textbooks and he took other small trophies, but they didn't find anything. Hmm. And Askins would go to his grave, denying that he had anything to do with the six deaths that we've talked about today. Wow. And he said, quote, that he did not have, quote, the depravity of mind required to commit any of the crimes. But again, such an advanced vocabulary. vocabulary, yeah. The final suspect, and I only saw this in one article, is James Groom. James first came into the scene when he was arrested for raping a 17-year-old waitress, so the right age, Mm -hmm. that he had coerced into getting into his car at a bus stop. (gasps) So two things. When the victim spoke to police, she said that James asked her if she knew who the freeway phantom killer (gasps) was and then tells her, well, that's me. Like, I'm the killer. Mm, I, and I know that some people falsely say things like that. I don't understand it, but I do know that people falsify. And police think that he used the I'm the killer line as a scare tactic. Mm-hmm. And I read that he has never been linked to the Freeway Phantom, but there are just some similarities mm. that were mentioned in that article. Right. Allison, we talk about DNA technology and forensics all the time on CNC, and we've had long conversations about how 
it seems each year advancements in those two fields grow. So with the Freeway Phantom, you would think that by now we would know who this person is. Right. Because I truly feel that there was enough evidence found that we should have an identity. Well, we have at least semen in the one case. Well, the problem was we had all of this evidence. But sadly, after so many years of the case going unsolved, all nearly all of the evidence was destroyed. Ugh. So many years later, the case was reopened for, you know, a re-examination. Mm-hmm. And investigators found nothing when they reopened the case. Oh, Not the great. semen samples, not the fiber, great. nothing. So all they had to go off was what the FBI kept on file. That's initially all they thought they had. Wow. And so that wasn't a lot because the FBI wasn't involved. Yeah, yeah. But as you can guess, this sparked public outrage. Mm -hmm. And many people protested. They did a petition to get this practice changed. And I actually read somewhere that it's like, I want to think like, an extraordinarily long time before evidence can be destroyed now. Once the case is kind of determined to be cold Mm -hmm. because while the evidence then didn't seem like much now that's a ton of evidence yeah you've got the green fibers you've got the semen you've got there were hair samples right an article called dna discovery could solve 1972 freeway phantom slaying by teddy con that was published on february 21st 2009 he had this to say about the dna quote D.C. police detective Jim Trainum of the Violent Crime Case Review Project started working on Williams, so that's Diane's case, in 2001. The killings have frustrated investigators for decades. In that time, witnesses and suspects have died, which we've talked about a Mm -hmm. lot on the show. Mm -hmm. Documentation is missing and evidence had been lost. But the Williams case actually offers a glimmer of hope. So this article says the department recently learned that Maryland State Police had DNA in the case because Williams' body was discovered over the district (gasps) line in Prince George's, Maryland. Police initially handled that case. So Maryland's police initially handled the case instead of the Metro Police. This is the only freeway phantom case where DNA testing can be done. Wow. If the sample yields a good profile, it will be submitted to the National DNA Database where it can be compared with evidence from other cases. There are currently several people of interest in the case, but, quote, nothing very strong, according to Trainum. A lucky hit on the DNA sample could change that. He said, quote, the people we're looking at all have their profiles in the DNA database. Mm. So being able to do the profile is key. Even if we don't get a good enough profile, it could lead to an ID or help exclude somebody, end quote. That makes sense. Even the exclusion mm-hmm. is Narrowing at least, down the list helps. Yeah. And they said they've got DNA profiles of everybody mm-hmm. who they're looking into. So. I mean, we're right there, I feel like. What happened? Well, I haven't found anything that they've tested it yet. And that was in 2009. So, wow. I mean, that's a while ago. Yeah. I mean, clearly, obviously, it didn't lead to anything because that's too long you for would it think. not to yeah been. and i honestly don't think that any of the suspects we talked about today are the freeway phantom i'm not feeling it either i mean there's so much that's i feel like doesn't fit mm-hmm. like with the the rapist gang mm-hmm. you've got somebody who I feel like if if that's the point of the gang, you know, they're going to be loyal. You're already in prison. They're not probably going to let you out. They might do a reduced sentence. But then if that's the case, you know, 
Well, you're going to be, even if they let you out, your other gang members are going to be there to beat you up or kill you when you get out of prison for riding out. Right. And they said that wasn't reliable. My, probably one that I would pick for it would be the two ex cops Mm -hmm. because of the age because so many of the similarities Mm -hmm. but then they were obviously discounted we don't know why but um and then with askins i feel like women are too old yeah they're too old and the same with groom yeah with groom his age was a good like the right age but i just think that that was a fluke almost because he's the one that remember says oh i'm the freeway fan oh yeah Yeah. i think that would be i think they're all stretch Mm -hmm. i agree as i think of all six of these victims i sit and wonder if we would be covering their cases if these girls were white how different would the investigation have been handled and i'm not alone in my thoughts and it's not without reason for starters think of the time period we're in the 1970s were not the height of social acceptance in the United States. The civil rights movement had officially ended, if we look at a textbook, but the civil rights movement was far from being officially over. Things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the turmoil of the racial divide were still on a lot of people's minds. Could prejudices have played a bigger role in this case than some would want to admit? Sadly, I think it did. Tommy Musgrove said, quote, those black girls didn't mean anything to anybody. I'm talking about on the police department. And he joined the D.C. police in 1972. He goes on to say, quote, if those girls had been white, they would have put more manpower on it. There's no doubt about that. Furthermore, at the time, Washington, D.C. was predominantly African-American. I read in the 60s and 70s, nearly 70% of that region was African-American, and they were governed by a predominantly white police department. So you know there had to be some injustices served there. Following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, the Vietnam protests and civil unrest, Washington, D.C. law enforcement, and the community were left trying to put the pieces back together. And Resolve wrote, quote, to residents, the murder of six girls in their community was a travesty. And over the next several years, it seemed to the community that the police weren't taking it seriously. They dedicated more man hours to political scandals and dealing with Vietnam protests until the loved ones left without any answers. It seemed like detectives cared very little about six dead black girls. But there is a group that does care about six dead girls from today's case. We will never stop asking questions or pursuing justice for these girls. Because in a world that failed them too many times because they were black, because they were female, because they were underage, we refuse to sit passively by and let the justice system fail them again. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll, we'll see, see you, you next week. notes from maggie and allison whoop, whoop. this one's been a long time coming yes it has so we want to send out love to amy 
Mary Jo, Nicole, Spartacus, Marina, Melissa, They Don't Say Dad podcast, Santa Maybe podcast. That was on two separate pages. And I was like, Santa, Santa gave us a shout out. I know him. We are on the good list. Yeah. Mandy, Lou, Maddie, Nikki, Drea, Emily, Katie, and Trevin, Stephanie, Ted, Lynn, Crystal, Clara, Courtney, Amber, Melissa, Dawn, Brittany, Stevie, and Jamie for reaching out to us via social media this week. We have loved hearing from all of you. It is honestly the best part yes. of our week. And we also want to send love to everyone who wished me a happy Y'all, birthday. Yeah. birthday. Um, I'll make that list. We'll do it next week. This, this like episode, Maggie said, is, yeah. We struggled mm-hmm. just to get it done. Yeah. Um, but I also wanted to send some love to the author of the newest written review that we got. It came from Maryland Nikki B, who wrote, quote, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. I'm embarrassed to admit how many. And this is truly one of my favorites. These ladies make you feel like you are their lifelong friends. I love the deep dives into the cases, as well as the compassion and empathy they show the victims. Great job, ladies. I love coffee, but I'm holding up my mm-hmm. wine glass to y'all. Cheers. Keep up the good work. End quote. Thank you so much. Reviews like that mean so much to us. Yes, because we pour our heart and soul into the podcast, especially after traumatic events, like trying to get this one to post. Right. So we really appreciate the kind words that you all say about Mm us. We'd also love to send love out to Brenda and Melanie for their praise on our coverage of Dulce's case last week, saying it was mm-hmm. the best coverage that they've ever heard, which means a lot because mm-hmm. Allison worked so hard on that case. And so did Emily who helped mm-hmm. translate the case. Mm-hmm. As with all families, we will always be here for you pushing for answers always and love to Brumback82, who wrote of the Dulce episode, quote, Allison, your daughter is brilliant. I was True. listening to this case and her theory on children not being taught not to go with other children blew my mind. Way, way to think out of the box. Now I'm having a conversation with my children about this. This is my number one podcast, and it doesn't just entertain, but it also teaches. I love it. In yeah. quote. I love you for that I review. know. And my daughter does also, because that comment made my day. And so I read it to my little sleuth hound. Not so little now, mm-hmm. but uh, when she got home from school and she smiled from ear to ear and she said, that makes me so happy. And that's how she talks, people. It's I so know. cute. <laughs> so thank you for making her day as well. And finally, but certainly not least, we have mounds and mounds of love going out to our newest patrons on Ooh. Patreon. We have Michaela, Danessa, Al, Gavin, and Marina. We love and appreciate you all bunches and bunches and we hope that you're enjoying the bonus content that we've got on there for you and we have really enjoyed our chats with you on facebook yeah we are friends and now we're family as well and if you would like to be a part of that family you can join our cnc patreon to be in that coffee and cases family just go to patreon.com slash coffee and cases we have all kinds of levels available for you, and each level is equally appreciated. Mm-hmm. And with that, all of our love is going out to each and every one of you. Until next week, Sleuth Hounds. Mm-hmm.